This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. Any other content creators watching, please stay at the end. I got some more camera stuff to talk about, but I don't want to bore everybody else to death, so let's jump in and see what we got. First up on Floatplane, Amin wanted to follow up on last week's conversation about HDMI, CEC, and ARC, and they said they've tested hooking things up directly to the AVR. It is kind of weird, because now if they turn things that go through the AVR on, it turns on the TV but not the AVR. So the CEC is just a mystery. Check your AVR settings. I had one that allowed that on purpose. And the reason for that would be, let's just say you have your streaming box plugged into HDMI one on your AVR, and then your other stuff in two and three, and it's going into your TV. What if you just want to turn on your TV and your streaming box? So there was a setting to allow for pass-through of that versus turn everything on. So you really got to dig into the settings on the AVR, the TV, you have to try multiple. And that's where it started to drive me crazy because if you turn one thing on one device, it might affect something on the other device. So very often to make one change, you have to make two. It is a mystery and kind of a nightmare, but at least you're making steps towards getting it. So uh, maybe that's kind of exactly what you were looking for. I don't know. Uh, let me know and, and check out some more of those settings. You did mention perhaps you should get an optical cable hooked up to the TV and call it a day. The only diff or issue with that is you can't get uncompressed full channel audio. So you can't pass Dolby Atmos at all through that. Um, 5.1 is just about the limit of optical audio. So if that's what your setup is, then that's totally fine. But if you were looking for more formats than that, then I would probably try to continue to get ARC and CEC working. But if you're like my upstairs setup and you just have two speakers anyway, that wouldn't matter at all. So optical would work totally fine, but let us know what happens. Next up, Raymond seems to be having the same issue with their combo Wi-Fi Bluetooth adapter for Mr. that I had. And it's a problem that we're, I'm not really sure what the fix or solution was. It's these combo adapters that basically all of the Mr. Sellers were using. I linked to directly to the Amazon page for them on my Mr. page, just because it worked great for a while. And then they didn't work anymore. And uh, I reached out to uh, a few people who got in touch with Sorg about it, uh, who at first couldn't reproduce the problem, but now it's working again. So I would say if you already have one of those combo adapters, just make sure to run update all or run it twice to double check that you have the latest everything, the latest Linux build and the latest Mr. File. And if you have enough USB ports, maybe consider one of the other ones. On the Mr. page, if you scroll down, I'll leave a link to it in the description, of course, but I have the ones that have really long antennas like I did in that box PC that I, I just uh, did the few live streams on. 
that's a bit overkill, but if you need uh, good reception, then that's the ones that have always worked. And then there's other smaller ones that are just the normal tiny sized that are good if you don't need long distance. But if you really need extra USB ports, like you always have, let's just say you have a combo adapter and then three controllers plugged in so you could play, you know, three uh, three player games, you're going to need that extra port. So you could, I'm sure you could get a USB hub too if you wanted to, but I like to keep things small and compact. So yeah, I, I wonder what happened with that. I bet you it was a, a weird Linux thing that wasn't quite Mr. Specific, but Sorg probably figured out a way to fix it or something. So uh, next, uh, same uh, same person, Raymond, had a, another question, though. A while ago, they asked about the updater screen um, for Update All doesn't show the first few characters via the Mr. HDMI port. They don't have any settings on their TV for overscan, and it doesn't seem to work. And also, he sees a bunch of other YouTubers missing the same couple characters on the left. Any idea how to force this via the mister? Um, I would I would double check what resolution what resolutions do this because I run it through my capture card very often when I'm running update all, and I could see everything. Um, I've also plugged it into quite a few different monitors, and I get I see it. But I have seen displays with overscan even you know, even flat panel displays. So maybe try 480p and 720 if you need to, if you need to see all of the text that's scrolling through, or if you already have a capture card, try that. But that's, that's a weird one. Um, if you want to point me to, if you have a screenshot, you could send me or even a photo of it and let me know, maybe we could try to figure it out together. The other thing you could give a try is, uh, take your Mr. INI file and rename it underscore original or something, then download a brand new Mr. INI file from GitHub and reconfigure that. Maybe it was a setting or something, maybe something changed. That's one of those things that probably won't fix your issue, but it takes about 30 seconds to do and you could just put it back the way it was. So I always like trying to test stuff like that because you never know. But yeah, let me know how you make out and hopefully I was able to point you at least in the right direction with that stuff. Next up, Steve Wells wants to know if I've tried RGB Pi. Oh yeah, I was one of the first people to buy it. I've been using it since the software since day one. I've done a ton of live streams on it. And it, it's, so far, it's my favorite front end for the Raspberry Pi stuff. Uh, but the whole remapping controls is not easy at all. And it, it isn't on any Raspberry Pi front end. Now, that said, if you have a six or eight button controller and you map your controls in the RGB Pi interface, they should be mostly auto mapped to all of the ga arcade games that you play. But let's say you're in an arcade game and you don't want, you know, your thumb button to be the accelerator. You want it to be your, your trigger fingers. Try remapping those and try remapping it on any of the Pi solutions. Good luck. I, I spent at least two hours in one of my streams going over this and even had some of the developers with me walking me through it. And sometimes it just didn't work. And they, we were all kind of like exasperated because it should work sometimes and it doesn't. And that's not a RGB Pi dig. That's just kind of how all this stuff works. So uh, also the RGB Pies can't work in many um, SCART switches, which I never understood. So there's there's a, a bunch of good and bad things about it. So I, I'm a huge fan of the software. However, somebody, I believe one of the main developers, is working on a completely different from scratch uh, Raspberry Pi based setup that will get rid of all of these issues. And that's what I'm really, really excited for. I don't even think there's an alpha build available yet, but I, I um, commented on them on social media and 
I'm following the project. As soon as it's available for beta, I will definitely do a live stream and try it out because I think that's going to be the biggest difference. Not using a front end on top of an emulator, on top of a launcher, on top of just actually getting it all tied together for use directly on the Pi. And the reason no one's done it is because it's a ridiculous amount of work. This is not something you could bang out in a weekend. This is a lot of work. So um, while it might sound like I just had some negative things to say about RGB Pi, I, do, I don't. I mean, they're just, it, it is what it is, right? But I love the, the software. The hardware is okay. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes next. A couple of questions for Mr. Morrow. First, do I have a recommended brand for surge protectors? Well, do you actually mean surge protectors or do you mean power strips? Because if you mean power strips, just a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of AC outlets with one output that you could plug into your wall or whatever else, then no, I would just buy whatever's cheap that fits your needs. But if you're actually talking about surge protection, that is way different because most of those power strips don't really have surge protection in them. So that if that's the case, I would look to the APC ones that I've been using, or I would try to find some, some name brand stuff with some good certifications that has some data behind it. Um, but it seems like you're just talking about power strips, and I would just get the cheapest one that fits your needs. And just know, you know, if you buy something that looks fancy for six bucks on AliExpress, maybe, maybe you should probably get something a little better than that, but you never know. Maybe it's the same thing as something else that just doesn't have the rebrand on it. But the next question is, is it wild to try and have more than 12 connections for your retro gaming setup? Not at all. That wall behind me has like six power strips, five power strips or something. The most important thing is how many devices are being used at once and how many power strips are on at once. And I leave all of them off unless needed. I have one over to the side that kind of has my TV that I just leave on all the time, especially if I want to send music to it or something. But for the most part, they're all off. And I've never turned everything on at the same time over there. You know, the most you have is a handful of things, TV, stereo, you know, console, switch, a couple other things like that. But it's uh, so you could have a gazillion things plugged into one outlet, but if only five things are powered on at once, the same normal amount that you would normally have, then there's not going to be any issue, even if there's standby power coming from a lot of them. So uh, I personally, though, wouldn't, I wouldn't look for more than 12 connections just because it would be cheaper and easier to, and probably better for cable management if you just separate them out to multiple. But what you could look into are those long wall strip office ones. And those might have 24 that just goes all the way across your wall or something like that. Or you could buy two of the 12 longer ones and just stack them one on top of each other, mount it to the wall or something like that. But I don't think it's weird to try and plug everything in at once. I just think it would you wouldn't want to turn everything on at once. Know what I mean? So hopefully I was able to um, answer your questions, but if I misunderstood, definitely let me know. Next up, Waifu for Life has a Mr. Multi-System, which has a built-in snack adapter, and they've been trying to find a dual snack connector for two Sega Saturn controllers for future light gun implementation, but they're only finding the ones with those HDMI connectors. Yeah, we all know how I feel about those. Um, so what are their best options besides changing their Mr. setup? So that's the downside of the Mr. Multi-System, which I like. I have just nothing but positive things to say about it. No shade being thrown, but you need to have something built that is using their customized way of uh, getting snack into, into the motherboard. So 
if you've seen their PlayStation module, I think it's beautiful. I think that's great. It has the uh, the GunCon connector in front. It's got the controllers. I, I think it's absolutely awesome. But basically, somebody would have to design that. And the multi-system is awesome, but that's what you're going to run into. Whereas if somebody has an external snack solution, um, you might be able to get it working, but you would have to then have a snack adapter for the Mr. Multi-System that you plug it in and it breaks out just the USB serial port to it. So I haven't looked into doing that. Maybe it is that easy. Maybe there is something that's available, or maybe you could pop the plastic off and there's a snack port right on the motherboard or something. It's honestly been so long since I've dug into it that I don't know. But I would check into all of those things and see which are the options. Hopefully there's something, and please let me know. If there's absolutely nothing available, uh, I might be able to ask a friend to, to whip up just a basic adapter so it goes from you know, whatever you need to plug into the multi-system to just a, a serial port adapter for, for snack stuff. So I think you should be good. Um, but just let me know what you find. Uh, another completely off-topic question. Back in January 2019, they purchased a DE10 Nano for just about 100 Canadian dollars. And today on the same website, it's 375 Canadian dollars, an increase of over 280%. Do I ever see electronics going back to their normal pre-pandemic prices, or do I think this will be the norm? So I have to start by saying I know nothing about global finance and a lot of this other stuff, but I have been in the industry a very, very long time, and I have seen trends, and it's rare that you see electronics go down in price. I think think in the case of today, inflation is so bad that everything went up, but I also think that if the market kind of leveled off and went back down, I don't think you would see discounts unless there was competition. Uh, So for something like the DE10, where there's only one person making it, that's probably going to stay the same price until the next thing comes out. And they might make a DE11 that's the same thing, but cheaper, so that they don't have to knock the price down. And by the way, that's wild speculation here. I'm just giving a random example of how I've seen things work in the past. Now, in the U.S., I just bought another one from DigiKey for $220, which wasn't nearly as much of an increase as yours. So I would double-check other stores that you're, uh, you know, in Canada that might be able to sell it. But it's definitely a lot more expensive than it was, but it's not insanely priced. It's not like you're spending 500 bucks on just the DE10. And the other thing you could look into is what are you buying another, another DE10 for? Are you buying it to use with a new retro castle kit, maybe look into the stores that are selling complete kits because they might have gotten bulk discounts. So buying a complete and total kit from ivory might actually be cheaper than getting a DE 10 nano locally. And then also buying that kit and then assembling it. So those are just some basic tips, but, um, while I'm not an expert and this is a random guess, I kind of feel like we're screwed for prices until something awful happens. And then we'll have to go through another recession and then we'll see where it lands. But I hope I'm wrong. I have no proof of that. I am not a a scholar. I just, I've never seen things just go back down in price without something bad happening. And, you know, smarter people would have better input in that. So please don't, don't treat any of this financial advice like it's anything other than a a fat guy yelling at his webcam wondering why things get so expensive. Next up, Mucky Barnes wants to know if I've had any good experiences with getting wireless audio out of a mister. They assume a a DAC with a Bluetooth transmitter would technically work, but imagine it would add lag. 
So I don't do much wireless audio at all. What I did do for a while when I was living in a studio apartment in the city is get some RF wireless headphones for my TV so that if I wanted to watch TV at night when my wife was sleeping, I wouldn't wake her up. So uh, that worked, but there was so much wireless interference in Manhattan that it was always popping and clicking and hissing. Whereas I imagine if I had those now, it wouldn't be a problem at all now that I'm just in the burbs. So I would try that. I would try taking the analog output of your mister and just putting it into a wireless RF audio transmitter and seeing what happens. If the goal is quality, I'd run a cable. If the goal is, hey, I need audio that's not terrible, give it a try, buy from a place like Amazon that allows for returns. And I don't have any suggestions because I don't, I've never really looked into this. Um, so if I searched Amazon and dropped a link, it would be the same random searching that you might be doing. So kind of useless to you and uh, for the answer to this question, I will just say that I don't know if I would do Bluetooth because it would almost certainly add add latency that might annoy you for video games. It might not be a thing for movies, you know, like if you wanted a Bluetooth transmitter for your, you know, streaming box or something, because you should be able to compensate for the delay, but I wouldn't use it for gaming, but I hope I'm wrong. Maybe there's somebody listening that says, no, I, I use it all the time, and here's the Bluetooth transmitter that you need. And just a very polite reminder, if you want to comment on stuff like that, please describe, don't drop a link. The way YouTube works it just erases most links that people post, and it doesn't even go into my held for review bin. It just disappears. So if you dropped a link, it's not going to work. But if you said brand 123's Bluetooth adapter model ABCD, that will work in the comments. So I'll be, even if it gets caught in the held for review, I'll be able to approve it. So if you have any suggestions, please let us know. But I think going with an RF wireless audio solution and crossing your fingers is probably going to be better. Next up, a couple questions from Jason Guffey. First, if you're looking to buy HDMI cables, the ones that I list in the Amazon store that I've personally tested are all rated at 4K60 and 8K60, but what if you only need 1080p60 or lower? Can you save money on cheaper cables? And I would say that if you're talking about buying one cable, just get the ones that have been verified by, not just me, by the way, the reason I knew about those cables was because people much smarter than me recommended them, and they're all certified cables. So if you're talking about one cable, I would spend just a few dollars more and just know that you have the peace of mind of upgrading. But if you're talking about things like, uh, I want to take 10 HDMI consoles that all max out at 1080p, yeah, that money starts to add up really quick if you need to buy 10 cables. So I would just buy ones that are rated at 1080p 60, but look for the certification symbol. Because while, yes, it's just some, you know, fancy marketing payoff, it is harder to sell crap cables with that certification sticker on there. Um, and I'm sure it happens, but it's far less likely than just getting one that looks fancy, but isn't HDMI certified. So that would be my only tip. And the only other thing to note about that is bulk is where the money lies. So there could be stock of 1080p60 certified cable left, but it could be that the stock of those are low and there's so many 4K60 rated ones that those might actually be cheaper. So just look for the rating and the cheapest price. Second, what about using PS3 with the RetroTINK 4K? Well, you would need an HDCP stripper because the PlayStation 3 always has it on, which is very stupid, by the way. So in the short term, if you have component cables, use those. Uh, it also, if you have older splitters, like the ViewHD ones that I used to recommend that you'd have to find used now, 
those would work. But what I'm really looking for is modern matrix switches and splitters that have this PS3 functionality built in that will work with all devices. And there's a newer chipset that has compatibility issues. Mike's looking into that. Maybe there's something Mike could do on the Tink side of things to compensate. But and also what I would love is one of those tiny little EDID spoofers. I'm looking down because I used to have them sitting in front of me for testing. Those little things where you could just say, here's the EDID, but it also strips HTCP. I would really love those. And the funniest part is I would love those for legitimate reasons that have nothing to do with copy, uh, copyright infringement or, or anything illegal. I just want to use the PlayStation 3 and other devices the way they're supposed to be used. So uh, if anybody knows of one, there was one going around in a Discord that we were talking about, and people had bought them, I think, within a few weeks, and they did work. But I bought the same exact link, the same one, and it did not work. So that's one of those things where you never know what you're getting. So if anybody has any solid recommendations, please DM me and I'd love to pick one up. Uh, lastly, what the heck is RS-232? It's a, a serial connection and protocol. It was used for things like uh, certain printers and peripherals. It predates USB. And it's something that you could often find these days with home automation equipment that still has things left over. Because if you spent couple hundred thousand dollars back in the mid 2000s on a full home automation setup, you might only need to replace a few bits going forward to keep up with the technological times. So that's when I've seen them the most is stuff like that, uh, or other pro like installations. And you could use it to have full control over a device that supports it. So like my Oppo Blu-ray player still has RS-232. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there. So you could, if you wanted to, look into any devices you owned that have an RS-232 connection and see if you want to figure out how to control them, but you might end up having to write some of your own code and you might have to figure out ways to interface them with each other. So unless that's a rabbit hole that you feel like you would enjoy going down, which I would not personally, <laughs> then I would, I would kind of leave those ports alone and not mess with it. But you never know. Maybe you already have experience in programming very similar things. So just moving over to doing that is would be easy for you. Not for me, but maybe it would for you. So I don't know, look into it and see what you think. But I, I certainly don't think it's something that we as retro gamers would benefit from uh, on a on a giant basis. Maybe people with Extron cross points that don't have network modules would be able to. But for the most part, I don't think that's things that we generally need. But if I'm wrong, let me know in the comments. Maybe I'm missing some very cool use for our RS-232. Next up, Rent Optional recently found out that Sega Genesis consoles were officially being sold up to 2018, so they started reading about Tectoy making Genesis consoles and selling them in Brazil. Are these actual Genesis consoles with original chips? Uh, yeah, so Tectoy licensed the Genesis from Sega, and they've been releasing that and the Master System in Brazil for a long time. And they are technically official clones, just like the Genesis Model 3 is technically an official clone, but it has a GOAC, a Genesis on a chip type of thing, that has all of the components needed in one chip, sort of like a one-chip SNES versus the originals. You could technically say the one-chip revision SNES boards are an official Nintendo-made clone of the original. I would never refer to those as clones, because if it comes from Nintendo... It's not a clone, it's Nintendo making it. And you could argue the exact same thing about the Tectoy and Majesco releases, that they're not clones because they are officially licensed using the real chips that are inside them. 
Um, some of them only have direct composite output. Some of them do have other options. But yeah, the whole story about Tectoy in Brazil is pretty awesome. So I would definitely look uh, look to the right resources for that. I think Stika must have done something on it at some point. But there's a lot of really good info. And it's kind of an interesting story. So yeah, I would definitely look into that if you're interested in it. But a lot of the Master System releases that you could only find in Brazil are because the Master System was there and being sold for a while. So there, there's some really cool stuff. I would definitely go down that rabbit hole if video game history and, and odd history is something that interests you. Next up, Charles Madeira has a question that I need to answer it kind of quickly, because if I don't, I could probably talk for an unhealthy amount of time about stuff like this. But basically, Charles found a video where Mick Gordon, who designed some of the Doom music, was talking about how they created some of those sounds, and the very elaborate setup that they used to just basically take sine waves and change them into music. And Charles wanted to know, can you do stuff like this with existing games? And can you take something like an SNES game and put each of the individual samples through this type of processing to change and enhance the audio? And the answer is yes, absolutely. But this is, this is a topic for, for actual real musicians. Um, if you want to look at, I mean, Remute uh, creates music on original consoles, so that's one way of looking at doing this. Uh, there's other people that could take and resample sounds. Stemage's work, um, you know, while I did the interview fanboying out about the uh, Super Met or the Metroid Metal stuff, that's what Stemage does for uh, for a living now is make video game music, and I think a lot of people go down that rabbit hole of using external processors to recreate sounds. I think Miss Mad Lemon talked about that a little bit for the creation of her albums. Different types of external processors, but the same theory. You're taking a sound generated by one thing and using another thing to change it. Anybody who's ever used a guitar pedal knows exactly what that's like. So I think it's incredible, and I like going into deep dive videos about stuff like that, but this is a topic that, I mean, not only could I nerd out about for a long time, I would want to have people who'd really do this all the time working on it. There's one YouTuber that also does stuff like this. I'm drawing a blank on the name. I'm going to feel very stupid later on for not remembering, but they basically redo songs through different types of hardware as well, and it sounds pretty incredible. So I'll leave a link to the video that Charles was talking about, but yeah, this stuff's really awesome. It just, it can get complicated, and it's a fun rabbit hole that you could you could lose years on if you wanted to. Next up, Solid Unit wants to know if there are any Mr. Direct Video solutions that allow for seamless resolution switching in PlayStation games. They switched to a direct video setup with a cheap DAC to get 24-bit color, but now they have the dreaded Chrono Cross problem. Yes, they definitely exist. They're hard to find, they're not common, and it's the same issue of if you bought 10 from the same reseller, would they all work the same? Would one work and nine not? Would nine work and one doesn't? So we're working on it. Um, there is a more solid solution coming up that I will definitely be demoing at some point. But for right now, I would say that for the for that type of stuff, just be lucky that there's only a handful of games on the Mr. right now that this would apply to. And hopefully within a few weeks or months at the latest, we could have a list of stuff that wouldn't do this. Um, I'm going to be talking to Kuro again at some point soon, hopefully doing some kind of podcast or something discussing DAX and exactly issues like this. But the as much as this is a horrible answer to your question, my answer is just hang tight for a little bit longer before we could uh, figure out how to identify exactly what you need. 
and hopefully there'll be easier to get solutions out there. But yeah, I, um, it's an annoying problem. There's a lot of DAC issues out there, which is why we really need one built by the community for the community. Even if it's twice the price, we're still talking about what, 20 bucks. Now it's 40. That's still fair for something that, that performs exactly the way you might need it. So, uh, I'm on it and it's going to be a little longer, but I will absolutely try to find some answers for you. Next up, Oliver Claire wants to know what's a good way to get a shielded composite video cable for the PlayStation 2. And the reason is Oliver has this big, amazing setup, but also has a small retro cart for any of the link cable setups. So PlayStation 1, Game Gear, whatever else, anytime that you could have a link cable setup, Oliver's got this cart that you could just kind of roll over, link the stuff together and go from there. And it's all connected through a GSCART switch with one output, just if you want to, going back to, I'm assuming RGB going to the main setup, and the other output going to the CRT that's on there, which could be a composite video-only CRT, which I'm, I'm guessing based on the question. So in this scenario, in the exact scenario Oliver's talking about, I would set my GSCART to no sync regeneration at all, and just use a sync on composite video PlayStation 2 cable. I think you would probably have to get one custom made from like Retro Access or something, um, or you could probably try to get one from, I think Retro Gaming Cables does one, but it has a sync stripper in it, which you definitely do not need unless you're going to an Extron cross point. So worst comes to worst, you could buy that one and just pop the head open and remove the sync stripper, but I think Retro Access would probably be able to make you one. And the advantage of this is the output that's going to the scaler you just get RGB. So that's no problem at all. And the one that's going to, I'm assuming a composite video CRT, you're just going to get one of those little SCART adapters on the output side. And since sync is on composite video, you could just run composite video directly into that uh, CRT. And in fact, I have a setup here that I'm considering doing exactly that. I'm going to wait a while because you know me, I'm going to get a week into this and change it. But I think it would be neat to have an RGB mod done to a nice consumer CRT that I have that uses the composite video port and back for sync and have a switch on it so that when I put it back to regular mode, it takes composite video. And then when I flip the switch, it accepts RGB. So if I did that, I should be able to get cables for all the consoles, Super Nintendo, Genesis, Master System, and have sync on composite video. So I could always have both outputs just by flipping the switch. Also for stuff like the original unmodded NES, I would just get a very cheap composite to SCART adapter and just only be able to run in composite video mode. So I think that's a pretty cool setup, but let me know if I got that wrong. Um, Oliver did mention, is there any way to use like shielded HD retrovision cables? And no, because the composite pin is different than the ones that the HD retrovision cables are wired for. So you'd have to hack them up and it would just be way easier to get custom cables. Uh, also, Oliver was asking about a, um, HDMI cables, but I already answered that before. So the same stuff just applies. Just get the stuff that has the certified logo on it. Next up, Green Devil wants to know if I have any plans to do a dedicated video on VHS capturing. Yes, 100% without a doubt, but it is so much more complicated than you would ever guess something like that could be. And here's the basic overview. I think, I think what the most common answer for most people is going to be, get a decent capture card and you might need to get some kind of time-based correction as well. That's the next thing I'm working on, so I don't have an answer for that yet. Uh, so you could just rip your home videos, 
two year two digital i personally would rip them basically uncompressed or in some kind of archival format and then just go from there yeah they're going to be big but it's 480i how big is it going to be comparatively speaking so that should be pretty good for most people but figuring out the time-based correction side of things is still pretty hard and when to go the doomsday route the rf capture um you know the i forgot what they're calling it but it's basically the doomsday duplicator project but for vhs and that's where things get even more complicated because using that hardware to rip it is pretty easy but what to do with the file afterwards is not. And I really do think, and I, I mean this with love, I do think any of the doomsday stuff is really for, for pro-level archival things, not so much for I just want to rip my home videos. Now, if you have the time and the money, especially the money, then you want to deal with all of this stuff. Yeah, if you have home videos that are really important to you, sure, you could get them looking way better than any standard capture solution. But what's the quality difference? And that's what I'm really trying to find out with these last few tests. Uh, and there's so much to deal with in post-processing because once you've captured something, how are you going to convert it to be viewed in a higher definition? Assuming you're not going to only watch it on a CRT in 480i, there's so much involved in this. So my guess is my upcoming video before the end of the year is going to be how to get it onto your computer. Um, with a very quick blurb on, hey, if you want to make it a smaller file that's easier to share, here's how you do that. But I'll be doing another video on post-processing, and then I'll do a little overview of Doomsday, how it applies to VHS, and why you might or might not want to use it. The number one thing for me for that project is the combining of multiple sources. Now, if you're really into this stuff, um, please let me know if I'm missing something. But the number one feature that I found, let's say you found a Laserdisc. And they only made X amount of copies of them, but there are multiples out there, and it's not on any other format. You could do a really good job using any of the methods that I found to get that onto your computer, or you could use the Doomsday method, and you're probably going to get better quality with the Doomsday method. But here's the biggest difference. If five people in the world have that laser disc, and you rip all five laser discs, and you use their software to combine that data together, if yours skips in one section that mine doesn't, and another person skips in that somebody else's doesn't, all of that information could be tied together to fill in the blanks. And that is where I think the project will be set aside from any other possible way of archiving this stuff. Yes, there's other advantages that are almost as important, but I think that's the one that just can't be done any other way. And that's why archiving this stuff using Doomsday, that's why I call it a pro solution. That, and trying to use the command line to fumble through re-encoding all of this stuff in a way that you could view it is not for the faint of heart. People who probably do this all the time are rolling their eyes at me right now, but Remember, even normal nerds have issues with this stuff. So uh, so yeah, that's a very short overview of what I'm aiming at. I have time-based correction testing to do, and then I'm going to go with my friend Fudo has been helping me with uh, all of these. I mean, he's been helping since the moment RetroRGB launched, but especially with this stuff lately. So once I get like a, a basic overview of what I need together, I'm going to go back with him and just say, all right, tell me everything that I'm missing in this that I need to flesh out before I do a video on it. Cause it might be as simple as buy this, buy that, put it all together and press a button. But I want to make sure that there's not anything else in there. And very often it is that easy, but you need to make sure the right parts are in the right order, etc. And there just isn't 
super clear info. Because even if people are accidentally giving the right info, or if they know all the reasons why, there's not clear advice out there. So I'm really doing, behind the scenes, I'm doing a ridiculous deep dive so that the video in front of the camera could be something that's easily digestible, and then go back and do some super nerd, you know, discussion on how to go crazy with it. But hopefully that made sense. Next up, Dustin Madison wants to know, what are my go-to old movies I watch when I need a nostalgic fix for any of those? Is it gratuitous violence, raunchy comedy, brutal horror, badass action, or sense of childlike wonder and adventure? Um, my my answer is boring, but honest. I don't have, like, go-to movies that I watch when I'm feeling nostalgic or something like that. Now, very often, something will remind me of a movie or of a time that I saw a movie where I'll go, you know, I haven't watched that in a long time. Let me see how it holds up. I did that the other day with Payback with Mel Gibson. I remember watching it when it came out going, it was good, but a lot of people are saying it's amazing. And watching it all these years later, it's only the second time I watched it, I kind of have the same opinion. Like, it wasn't a bad movie, but it was like, it felt like what, it was trying to be what John Wick accomplished, but it didn't quite get there. So tell me in the comments if you disagree, because so many people have said that they love that movie, and it was cool, but it's certainly not one of my top movies. But those are the situations that I run into. I'll be flipping through something, and or somebody will mention something, and it'll just remind me of it, and then I'll go, oh, I want to go back and watch that. But that's basically it. Um, the closest thing to, to that other stuff is just movies that maybe I saw when I was a kid that something reminds me of. or But that was basically it. And um, So yeah, I mean... Maybe as soon as I'm done uploading this, it'll hit me and I'll go, oh, crap, I do listen to this or watch this whenever I... But yeah, for me, I, I'm, a, I'm more of a live-in-the-moment type of person. So, you know, while I like telling stories about the time Cousin Scott and I were 12 sitting on the floor of my grandparents' house in a freezing sun porch where all the old people in my family used to keep their TVs on the porch, so it was wintertime, and we had those space heaters that were recalled because they were starting fires, and if you touched them, you'd burn your skin off, and we're huddled up trying to beat Super Metroid. Like, I'd love that stuff, but when I go to play Super Metroid now, it's because I want to be in the moment playing that amazing game. So I, I hope that doesn't come off as an insult. I'm certainly not talking down to anybody who... Uh, who nostalgia makes happy. It's just not so much who I am. I just, I'm more of a in the moment, let's do this now type of person. So hopefully, I don't know. Now that I said all that out loud, I feel like I just sounded like a complete douchebag. Sorry, it's not at all the intent. I'm just annoyingly honest, like always. <laughs> Next up, Elmer M said, Extron cross points are great. Am I familiar with their HDMI switches? I've never used one, but they seem awesome. They seem just as robust. But the last affordable line that I saw from them maxes out at 1080p 60, I think, and will not do 4K 60. So I'm not sure if it would work for for what I've been trying to test because I really want 4K 60 and 4K 120 matrix switches for use with the RetroTINK 4K. However, if you're talking about having a whole bunch of 1080p 60 only consoles routed to multiple outputs, that might be a perfect solution. So um, I do think a full Extron gaming setup might actually be perfect for everybody up to that. Or if you had the money to buy one of their modern ones, which I think are many thousands of dollars. Because <laughs> remember, they're meant to be pro environments. They're meant to be controlled in existing media rooms and stuff like that. They're not meant for us. It just so happens that when they're decommissioned and cheap, they're perfect for us. 
so yeah, I do think it would be awesome as long as it checked all of the boxes that you have. So maybe someday I, I would just pick up a cheap one to test. Maybe somebody local has one I could just borrow just for the hell of it. But yeah, I think they're awesome. I think they're really high quality. And I mean, heck, uh, you know, maybe I could borrow a 4K 120 version of theirs just to run some tests and see how much fun it would be. But definitely wouldn't suggest buying one of those unless you're mega rich. And lastly, Hugh O'Brien had a question that I think ties into the camera thing I told you about, so I wanted to save this question for last. Totally a, nit a nitpick, but just FYI, I think the bright lighting here kind of makes it look like I'm on a green screen since it's off from the background lighting. So that's one of the many issues that I run into is uh, whoever lived here before me has lights above me in this room, which I don't like at all for a million reasons, but they do fill the room with a lot of light. And then I have a window in front of me where the light comes in there. And then I have two other lights pointed at the ceiling that I also sometimes turn on when it's a cloudy day. Uh, so that's some of the lighting issues, but I think the camera itself has always been kind of a problem. And the webcams, I don't expect webcams to perform as well, but the DSLR style do. And what I did today is take the Sony ZV-1 or ZV-10, I can't remember which, but the small Sony one, set it to full auto mode, and then use that essentially webcam style. So that's 1080p 60. And I did make a few changes that I noted down. Um, when I started the part about the, or just the second section about, or maybe third, whatever, about Mr. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, I switched it from portrait mode to just movie auto. And I think portrait mode smoothed out my face like a weird Instagram filter. And that just, it looked strange. I looked plastic. So I think that helped. And then around, uh, where was it? When I talked about the Syncon composite video cable from Oliver, I turned off those two lights. And I actually think the lower light with this camera works. I think that's fine. And shockingly, I think full auto mode worked. So the reason I haven't used this camera every week and the reason I moved over to webcams is because Sony's remote software is awful. The Panasonic Lumix Connect software Lumix Tether, I mean, that is incredible. You set your camera up, you get your GH5 up on a tripod. All you do is I have it flipped this way. When you turn on the camera, you just press the, the middle button because the default setting that comes up is going to say, do you want to use your PC? So, I mean, I should have started by saying have it plugged into HDMI and USB to your PC, but just powering it on and even blind, reaching behind and hitting that button, now you're in full control mode and that's it you use your PC to do everything. So as long as the camera's aimed properly, all I have to do is flip that switch, press the button, I kind of come here and I make sure the camera didn't shift, and then everything else I do with my keyboard and mouse. Focus, white balance, aperture, everything. And the Sony app says that it does it, but it sucks. You really need to be using the camera and the app at the same time. So that's why I stopped using it for these weeklies, even though I think the quality is far better than an average webcam. Not nearly as good as the GH5, but it's also a third of the price, including the lenses that I use or something. So I think this might be a win from now on. But I wanted to ask my fellow content creators and people like you who take the time to help me with these things, what you think about all this. I think exactly as you see it here is probably what I'm going to be doing. I'm just going to leave it in this mode. Power it on when I'm ready to use it, check that it's, you know, uh, that it's centered properly and just leave it in full auto. And yeah, sometimes the focus might be off, but this does a much better job than the GH5 holding my, holding my hands up in front of it and getting the focus to change. So I think this might just be a win. 
I think this might just be what I leave it as. And I'm going to keep the Kio for just when I need a webcam. Because some of those live streams, when I just grabbed a really long USB cable, plugged that in, and then just had it here, I think it was awesome. Especially when I needed it as a secondary shot. So if I had, like, I have two capture cards installed in my computer. So if it was... Um, let's say the Datapath Vision was getting one thing and the Live Gamer 4K was getting another, but I still wanted to use just footage of me here, that webcam would be perfect. So I, I guess I could use another camera and like a uh, the Cant Link adapters, but that's just more devices, more wires. The more things you have during a live stream, the more chances of crashing. So unless you all disagree, I think just leaving this in full auto mode uh, should be good enough for the weeklies. It's a very cloudy day today, so I'll have to try again on a very sunny day, but I think this is it. I think this is the solution. It's 1080p 60. It's focused on me. The background is still visible, but kind of blurred enough, so you don't get the same depth of field that you would with the Lumix and the much better prime lens, but I think this is cool. It sucks that, you know, I still, every time I power this on, I'm still going to have to resume it and check, but it's still... It's not that much work. It's certainly not nearly as much work as unplugging and replugging and rebalancing everything. The one other thing I do need is I, I'm still balancing it on that CD reel on a mic stand. And I think if I mount it to the ceiling, I could do everything pretty easy. But then I would have to flip the image when I uh, uh, put it into OBS, which would be fine. But when I use it as a webcam... I would always have to have OBS running so I could use the virtual cam so it's always flipped. That would be kind of annoying. But other than that, I mean, I think that should work. But does anybody have any advice on ceiling mounts for cameras? Uh, I guess it would have to be strong enough to hold the GH5 because I would still want to use this one for when I do the fancier videos so that I look as pro as possible. But with all respect to everybody listening, I mean, I, the, the me shots in these weeklies just shouldn't be distracting. They should be, they should be clear and not not something that makes you distract you from what you're listening to. But I really don't even need to be on camera for the weeklies. It's the stuff that I talk about that's way more important. So I feel like this is the best good enough solution I've had so far. But I, once again, there are so many amazing content creators that listen and help. I want your opinions. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, thanks you for, for the feedback. I think this is how I'm going to do it from now on. And I guess we'll see in the future how this pans out. Um, knowing my luck, I'll change it the moment I drill holes in my ceiling and get a ceiling mount, but we'll see. Lo I'm really looking forward to any suggestions you have. Well, that's it for this time. As always, if you have any question whatsoever, please just ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way the services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, like you saw today, I just like scrolling through in real time and treating it like we're hanging out somewhere at a bar or coffee shop or something, just kind of hanging out, chatting about nerd stuff. So any question at all, fire away wherever it is that you support. And as always, thank you to everybody, whether you participate in these, whether you support in one of the monthly services, or whether you just subscribe and are nice to me in the comments. Thank you very much. It's all very much appreciated. And I will see you all next week.